church family, I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 6 through 13 today. I'm learning so much in our study of Genesis. Um, I hope that you are as well. It's amazing that scriptures that we can read over and over and have read our whole lives can continue to teach us and mold us into the image of Christ. Genesis chapter 3, if you will stand to your feet, if you're able to do so, we're going to read our passage for today. I'm going to read, you follow along in God's Word. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. It's the word of God for his church today. You may be seated. Tyler, of our message today is God's world corrupted. God's world corrupted. Last week we entered into what I might would call the infamous chapter of the Bible, which describes the fall of mankind. In Genesis 1 and 2, we saw God create a very good world. And we learned how this good world had a very good and perfect design. And then at the end of chapter 2, the first man and woman have been joined together in marriage and they are living in perfect harmony with God, perfect harmony with each other, perfect harmony with the rest of creation. We also learn in chapter 2 that God gave a command. He gave a command of something they weren't to do. There were commands of things they were to do, and there was one command of something they were not to do. Man was not supposed to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then chapter 3 opens with the chilling statement that there was a serpent in the garden who was more crafty than all the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. And what comes next, what follows verse 1, helps us understand why that is such a chilling statement. In verses 2 through 5, this serpent tempts the woman to eat from the tree which God had forbidden. And this serpent tempted the woman to doubt, as we saw last week, the goodness of the God who had made her in His image. And to, and to twist and to, and to replace the good Word of God with her own Word and with the serpent's Word. To think that this good God had not provided her with everything that she needed. Last week we learned this, that the reality of temptation should drive us to Jesus for divine rescue. And now today, as we look at the next scene in this account as it unfolds in verses 6 through 13, I believe we will see God's Word teaching us this, church, that the ugliness of sin, the ugliness of sin should drive us to Jesus for a beautiful salvation. The ugliness of sin should drive us to Jesus for a beautiful salvation. 
I'll go ahead and say this up front. If you're here today and you have not trusted in Christ alone, I pray that you will see the ugliness of your sin in your life and you will be driven through God's Word by the power of the Spirit to Christ to trust in Him for salvation. But this message is not just for those who have not trusted in Christ. Church family, those of us who have trusted in Christ as our Lord and Savior, we need to continue to see the ugliness of our sin when it rears its ugly head in us. And we need to daily be driven to Jesus to enjoy and to rest in the beautiful salvation that He has given to us. Temptation itself, which we looked at last week, is not something deserving of God's judgment. It's not wrong simply to be tempted. But falling prey to temptation is. When we give in to temptation, we rebel against God and His good Word. And the Bible calls this rebellion against God sin. Let me ask you a question. What comes to your mind when you think about sin? What comes to your mind? Do you think about yourself? Or do you think about other people? Or do you think about yourself and other people? Do you think about all people in the world? Do you think about past choices which you wish that you could go back and change? When you think about sin, do you think about consequences in your life that you wish you would have avoided? Do you think that sin is not that big of a deal? Are you burdened under the weight of it? Do do you wonder what sin actually is? Are you not sure? How do you feel when you think about sin? Do you feel indifferent to it? Do you feel embarrassment and shame? Do you feel sorry and broken? Do you feel perhaps hopeless and helpless? Do you feel thankful for victory? Do you feel weighed down by guilt? Do you feel uncomfortable just thinking about it and just talking about it? Church, the truth from God's Word is that sin is real. Sin is falling short of the standard that God has set. Sin is an offense against the holy God. Sin is serious. Sin is bad. Sin should be avoided at all costs. Sin is something we have all committed. And sin is something that we all need to be saved from. And it all started back in the Garden of Eden when Satan tempted the woman. And the woman and her husband who was with her did the one thing that God told them not to do. Everything in God's world, everything in Genesis 1 through 2 was beautiful and perfect, but sin came in and destroyed that beautiful perfection. Sin ushered in what I just call an ugliness. An ugliness entered into God's beautiful and perfect world. We see this ugliness in our passage today, and we see it all around us every day, and we see it within our own lives. There is also a beauty, church. There is also a beauty that God has provided which the ugliness of sin cannot, cannot overcome. The first thing we learn in this passage is this. Church family, sin promises a life that it can't provide. Sin promises us a life that it cannot provide. The opening scene of Genesis 3 allows us to listen in onto this conversation between the serpent and the woman. And we examined that conversation in detail last week. The serpent tempts the woman to think she doesn't have something that she needs. And then verse 6 opens up the second scene where we see the choices which are made by both the woman and the man and then the beginning of the consequences which follow. Verse 6 says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food 
and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. See, the focus now shifts from the words of the serpent to the thoughts of the woman as she considers what she is going to do, as she considers this temptation that has been placed in front of her. The text gives us three things which go through the woman's mind as she looks at this this forbidden fruit. This fruit is going to satisfy my hunger. This fruit is good to look at. It's pleasing to the eyes. And this fruit is going to increase my level of knowledge, my level of wisdom. It's going to enlighten me. One writer described the woman's dilemma this way. He said this, this prospect of material, aesthetic, and mental enrichment seemed to add up to life itself. And I think he's right. In other words, eating this fruit will give me a better life. That's, that's what it boiled down to for this, for this woman here in the garden. If I eat this fruit, I will have a better life than I have, let's just put it bluntly, Obeying God. Friends, sin does not promise to steal our life. Sin doesn't come knocking on the door and say, hey, open up, I'm going to take your life from you. It doesn't do that. Sin promises to give us a better life. But what it promises, it cannot provide. Notice these three false promises of a better life, which will begin to shed light on the ugliness of sin. First, sin promises satisfaction, but leads to emptiness. Part of this better life that sin promises is the satisfaction. Like I, I don't have something I need, and so if I get this, I'm going to be satisfied, but it only leads to emptiness. The text says she saw that the tree was good for food. She thought it would satisfy her hunger. We see here that sin preys on our God-given desire to be satisfied. God has put within us this longing to be at peace, to be at rest, to be satisfied. However, sin and promising to satisfy actually leads us away from the only one who can truly satisfy our hearts. And that is God Himself. God created us to desire to be satisfied and He created us to be, to be satisfied only by Him. And sin leads us away from Him. Perhaps the sin is greed. If only I had more money or a bigger house or a nicer car, then I would be satisfied. Perhaps the sin is some kind of substance abuse. If only I had another high or if only I had another drink, then I would be satisfied. Perhaps the sin is lust. If only I had one more look, then I would be satisfied. Perhaps the sin is the sin of retaliation. If only I could pay that person back for what he said to me or what she did to me, then then we'd be even and I would be satisfied. I just want you to know, That's sin talking. That's sin making those promises. And the ugliness of sin is seen in the fact that sin never delivers on the satisfaction that it promises. We're always left empty. Perhaps even more empty than we were before when we choose the path of sin. The second sin promises delight but leads to despair. This is another part of the good life. It's not really the good life that sin promises. Sin promises delight, but leads to despair. Verse 6 says that the woman saw that the tree was a delight to the eyes. Listen, sin looks good. Sin looks good. It doesn't come dressed up ugly. It comes dressed up looking good. Sin looks appealing. Rarely, if ever, does sin look bad on the outside. At least not in that moment of temptation. In a warning about false teachers, 
who disguised themselves as apostles of Christ. Paul was writing to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 11:14. He's writing about false teachers and he says, "Hey, these false teachers are disguising themselves as apostles of Christ." And then he says this. He says, "And no wonder. No wonder. In other words, I'm not surprised that they're disguising themselves." He says, "For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light." Just think about it this way. You have probably never sinned because the sin looked bad. Maybe you have, but most of the time we we don't sin because we say, ooh, that sin looks bad. It looks harmful. It looks like it's not going to be good for me. I'm going to go do it. No, that's not what happens. We sin because the sin looks good, but it doesn't deliver. Instead of bringing the delight the fruit looked like it would bring, it brought the despair God warned would come. It may have looked beautiful to the eye, but It was ugliness for the soul. And then we see a third way that sin offers us life, but actually can't deliver on that offer, can't deliver on that promise. Sin promises knowledge. Sin promises enlightenment. But it leads to confusion. Sin promises to make our lives better because it promises we'll know more. Be better equipped for this life, but actually sin just leads to confusion. Remember Satan's temptation included the claim that God was wrongly reserving knowledge for himself and not giving it, sharing it with the humans, with mankind. He tempted the woman, Satan tempted the woman to think that there was a greater knowledge that she needed and she took the bait. And so in verse 6, we see that she saw that the fruit was to be desired to make one wise. She wanted an increased mental capacity. The problem here is that the woman was trying to acquire knowledge that God had said was off limits. She was trying to acquire this new wisdom, this new knowledge that God had said was off limits. Now, Normally, when you have the knowledge you need and you apply it in the right way, the result is good. The result is order. But here, this was not knowledge that they needed. And again, we see sin can't deliver on its promises. Instead of order, what we see throughout the rest of this passage is the breakdown of God's order. We see them confused about their nakedness all of a sudden. We see them confused about how to cover their nakedness. We see them confused about God's omnipresence. That is, that He is everywhere all the time. As they try to hide from the God who is everywhere and who sees everything they're doing, they try to hide from Him. There's this confusion even about who God is now. We see them confused about how to answer the God they sinned against. When we get to verse 16, we'll see confusion enter into the roles of the husband and the wife. Church, sin promises a life of satisfaction, delight, and knowledge, but it only leads to emptiness, despair, and confusion. And not just in the Garden of Eden, but in everyday life, right here, right now. Notice the similarity between the description of the first sin in the Garden that we read in Genesis 3, and then a warning for Christians that was written several thousand years later in the first century A.D. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 15-17, through 17, we find John writing to the church. And I just want you to notice, I'm going to read this, and maybe even look at verse 6 as I read from 1 John, and notice the similarity. John writes to the church, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Notice this, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions. It's like he's looking right at Genesis chapter 3 when he writes that. 
Those things are not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away. Here John is saying, sin is not going to be able to provide what it says that it, is, it, said it says that it's promising. He says, the world and its desires are passing away. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Sin offers us life, but it cannot deliver on those promises. We've only begun unpacking the ugliness of sin. Church, the second main truth we see in this passage is this. Not only does sin provide a promise of life that it can't provide, but sin causes a destruction that we can't fix. Sin causes a destruction that we cannot fix. The end of verse 6 tells us that the woman and man made a choice. It was their choice to make. No one made them make that choice. They made a choice. The text says she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. And the result, the result was disastrous. Please hear this loud and clear this morning. It doesn't matter what sin promises. It doesn't matter how good sin looks or how good it feels in the moment. Sin always leads to destruction. Sin always leads to destruction. It may be destruction a second later. It may be destruction minutes later or hours later or days later or months later or an eternity later. But it will always end in destruction. One of my daughters has earned herself the nickname Wrecking Ball. She's earned that nickname. Wrecking Ball. Now she is cute. She is funny. She makes me laugh so hard. But she always seems to leave a path of destruction in her wake. And she's been like that from her beginning. She really has. From the get-go, she has found great joy in tearing things apart. Whether it's a book, or crayons, or a tall building that one of her sisters has just finished constructing with blocks. She leaves a path of destruction in her wake, and thus she's earned the nickname Wrecking Ball. Well, friends, on a much more serious note, sin is a deceptive wrecking ball. It looks cute sometimes. It looks fun a lot of the times, but it leaves a path of destruction in its wake. Broken relationships. Broken marriages. Broken homes, broken people. And I think we see at least three areas of destruction in the wake of this first sin. First, just notice this. This one is really easy to miss. Sin destroys our innocence of sin. Sin destroys our innocence of sin. God had created Adam and Eve to to not have to experience the horror of sin. And sin destroyed that innocence in their lives. Before they sinned, the first man and woman were completely innocent of sin. They had no knowledge of the evil of sin, but all of that changed when they sinned. Verse 7 is perhaps one of the saddest verses in the entire Bible. The text says this, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Let's start with that first part. Then the eyes of both were opened. Well, it almost seems like the serpent was right. Let's think about it. The serpent had told the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And now the text says their eyes were open. It would sound like Satan was telling the truth. 
Friends, half-truths are just as big of a lie as whole lies. We could put it that way. Oh, he told them their eyes would be open, and their eyes were open, and God knew their eyes would be open, but it wasn't what they were expecting. The problem is that it opened their eyes to what God was protecting them from. It opened their eyes to what they didn't need to see, sin and its destructive nature. The serpent promised they would gain, and they did gain. But what they gained was nothing compared to what they lost. They gained a new understanding, but they lost their innocence. Their eyes were open, but in the process, their hearts were darkened. Sin destroys our innocence of sin. Second, we see that sin destroys our relationships with one another. We see this wrecking ball of sin come through and just destroy this first human relationship. Verse 7 says, The eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. Like I said, this is perhaps one of the saddest verses in the Bible. But to fully understand how sad it is, we have to read verse 7 in the context of chapter 2, verse 25. Remember, after God joined the man and the woman to one another in marriage in the garden where they had everything they needed, Scripture says this, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's the last verse we have describing the perfect world that God had created. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This means that there was nothing in between the man and the woman hindering their relationship with one another. There was nothing to hide. There was nothing to be ashamed of. They had a perfect relationship. But all of that changed in a second. As one writer said of... Chapter 3, verse 7, he said the innocent serenity of chapter 2, verse 25 is shattered. And I think he's exactly right. After disobeying God, that perfect relationship with one another is broken. And that brokenness is further revealed, if you'll go ahead and look at verse 12, it's further revealed where God confronts Adam and then Adam blames his wife. To use our modern lingo, he throws her under the bus. He says, wife. God says, Adam. Adam says, wife. Blames her. I'm sure she wasn't too thrilled with that. Nor should she have been. He says, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And we'll see this brokenness between the man and a woman again, as I said earlier, later in verse 16, where God tells the woman, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. There's going to be this disharmony in relationships between all of humanity with one another here pictured in this first relationship, which was a marriage relationship. Sin destroyed the relationship between the first humans and friends. That destruction has just been passed right down to us. Any brokenness that you experience in a relationship, whether it's between friends or a husband and a wife or parent and child or between siblings or co-workers or classmates, whatever that human relationship is that you experience brokenness in, it can all be traced back to sin. Sin is at the root of all brokenness in our relationships with one another. But it's worse than that. Sin didn't just destroy our innocence of sin. It didn't just destroy our relationships with one another. Church, sin destroyed our relationship with God. Sin destroys our relationship with God. Verse 7 is followed by verse 8, which could also get the award for the saddest verse in the Bible. The text says in verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. 
You see, these first humans had the privilege of living with God. They had the privilege of communing with God. But all of that just came to a screeching, abrupt halt. For the first time, we see the man and the woman trying to, note this, hide from God. Sought to break our hearts. Hiding from God. Verse 10 gives the reason for their hiding. And in verse 9, the Lord God calls to the man and says, where are you? And then verse 10 contains some more of the saddest words in the Bible. The man replied, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Here we see that while their awareness of their nakedness certainly indicated what other verses clearly revealed, namely the breakdown of their relationship with one another, the deeper, the deeper, the deeper shame that they feel is shame before the Holy God. Adam is afraid of God. I was scared of you. Like a child who's maybe broken the television with a ball might run and hide when he hears his daddy coming down the driveway. Not because he wants to play hide and seek. So the first humans hid themselves when they heard God. Friends, that is a very clear sign that all is no longer well in the relationship between humanity and humanity's Creator. Not only was the man afraid of God, his heart is now bent away from God as a sovereign Creator. When God questions him, he doesn't merely say, Wife, he says, wife, whom you gave me. Wife, whom you gave me. He blames God. He said, the woman whom you gave to be with me. Notice what he does. The destruction is just there. It has already destroyed his relationship with his Creator. And he's blaming God. He's holding God responsible for his choice to disobey the God who had given him everything he could have ever needed. And then the woman, she trusted the serpent rather than God. And even though she does admit that she was deceived, she still shifts the focus away from herself to the serpent in verse 13. And so you do, do you see the ugliness of what has happened in God's good world, as his world is corrupted by sin. Sin has driven them away from their very source of life. Sin has has driven them away from the God who created them and the God who provided abundantly for their every need. Sin has destroyed their relationship with God. I think one writer summarized this destruction caused by sin well when he said this, here, the divisive effects of sin. Sin setting man against his dearest companion, talking about his wife, and alienating him from his all-caring Creator. Splendidly portrayed. And church family, I just want us to realize today that the divisive effects of sin are portrayed every day in our own lives. The sin of arrogance. The sin of harsh words. The sin of cold shoulders. Complaining attitudes of sexual immorality, of unrighteous anger, of lying, of stealing, of coveting, of disobedience toward parents, impatience with our kids, unkindness toward siblings, disrespect for authority, laziness, gossip. The list could go on and on and on. All of these are sins which bring destruction into our lives. 
But here's the bigger problem for us. It's that we can't do anything to fix the destruction that sin causes. Sin causes a destruction that we cannot fix. We can't just look at the pieces and say, oh man, I hate that that happened. Let me pick up the pieces and put my life back together. We cannot do that. We can try and try and try, but sin causes a destruction that we can't fix. Look at verse 7. As soon as they sinned, Adam and Eve decided to fix the problem. They decided to take matters into their own hands. Verse 7 says, And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They were right. They were right in their awareness that now their shame needed to be covered. But they were wrong in thinking that they could provide the covering. Friend, please hear me. There is nothing that you can do to fix the destruction sin has caused in your life. There's nothing you can do to fix the problem of sin in your own life. Not that you can do just you and yourself. The man and woman tried to cover their nakedness, but God saw right through their self-made effort at hiding their shame. And God sees right through all of our self-made effort, no matter how religious that effort may look on the outside. The damage had been done. Human attempts at covering up our shame are like trying to put the peel back on a banana. Or put the peel back on an orange. What's done is done. There's no going back. There's no hiding it. There's no hope for the shame to be lifted when we try to fix the problem of sin ourselves. But, this is where our hearts, our hearts are just reveal their darkness. But of course there's a chance, we say, there's a chance that God will just ignore it, right? Or there's just a chance that, that maybe He won't notice. And if He does notice, He'll just ignore it. I mean, He's a loving God after all. I mean, He's not going to hold it against me. Right? Wrong. Third main truth we need to see is this, and it's super important, church. Sin is a failure that God can't ignore. Sin is a failure God can't ignore. That's why we're talking about this. That's why we're spending time today just learning about sin and the destructive nature. If God could ignore it, if He would ignore it, then who cares? But God can't ignore it, and so we must care. And examining the details of what each was doing and saying in this passage, we don't want to miss a very important point. God notices their sin. God notices their sin. The woman listened to the serpent. Adam listened to his wife. The woman acted independently of the man, though she was created to function alongside him as his helper. The man failed to act, though he was supposed to be the leader of his wife, providing her with sound instruction and protecting her from any enemy. Both of them disregarded the Word of God and did exactly what God told them not to do. They both sinned and God did not ignore it. He couldn't. He is a righteous God and therefore He cannot ignore sin. Now notice the order in which He confronts them. Notice the order in which He confronts them compared to the order in which they sinned. The woman sinned first. I mean, she took the first bite, not the man. But God confronted the man first, not the woman. And this is further confirmation, as we've looked at in past weeks, that God designed the man to lead, the woman to help her husband. He holds, God holds the man responsible for the eating of the fruit, even though the woman was deceived first. God says, Adam, where are you? Even though he sinned second. Men, God created us to lead the way in holiness. Husbands, 
God created us to actively work to purge sin from our homes through the ministry of God's Word. So as Paul wrote to the Ephesians, we would sanctify our wives as Christ does the church, having, quote, cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. Fathers, God has created us to bear the final responsibility for the spiritual state of our homes. To bring our children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, as Scripture says. The buck stops with us. And God notices when we passively stand back like Adam. Watching our wives, our children, ourselves, our homes get carried away by the craftiness of the serpent. By the enticements of the world. But women, you're not off the hook. Because then God does turn to the woman and says, what have you done? Despite Adam's failure to lead, God still holds the woman accountable for her actions as well. He confronts each of them individually. Each person is responsible for his or her own sin. And we can shift the blame all we want, but blaming others or blaming our circumstances never works with God. We can say, God, that person made me do it. Or we can say, God, that serpent made me do it. But God just sees us doing the sin. And he does not ignore it. There's more to this story. You see, as God confronts Adam, there's even more going on than meets the eye. Friends, this is not, this is not merely a true story about the first sin. It is that. It is a true story about the first sin. But this is a true story about every sin. About your sin and about my sin. For when Adam sinned, he was not merely sinning for himself. He was sinning for the rest of humanity. You see, Adam was the representative of the human race. And his failure, his sin, meant that everyone descended from him would be born into this world already a sinner. All of humanity would inherit a sin nature from Adam, and we have. That's why you don't have to teach a child to whine or complain or throw things or take a toy from another child or to get angry when he or she doesn't get their way. That behavior stems from a heart that is dead in sin from the moment we are conceived in our mother's womb. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, Paul wrote, In Adam, all die. You catch that? In Adam, all die. And in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Paul wrote this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. And in verses which follow, Paul says things like this, Many died through one man's trespass. And because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. And one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Do you get the point? Do you get the picture? When Adam sinned, we all died. We don't merely commit sin. We are sinners. And just like with Adam, God notices our sin. He notices all sin. And we deserve death. But church, there's good news for us today. Because hear this. Although we have been stamped with the sin of Adam, we can be stamped with the righteousness of the second Adam. The last Adam. The one who came to be our representative in place of the first Adam. And to do what that first Adam failed to do. Who is this better Adam? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because church, sin promises a life that it can't provide. And sin causes a destruction that we can't fix. And sin is a failure that God can't ignore. But truth number four today is this, church. Jesus 
is the Savior that sin can't overcome. Jesus is the Savior that sin cannot overcome. Yes, Paul said, in Adam all die. But he goes on in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22 to say this, So also in Christ shall all be made alive. Yes, the Bible says that Adam was our representative in the Garden of Eden, but the Bible also says that Jesus was our representative in another garden, in the Garden of Gethsemane, where He faced His greatest temptation to sin as He pleaded with God to let the cup of God's divine wrath pass over Him. And just like He did with every other temptation that He faced, Jesus never sinned. And church, because He never sinned, He did what the first Adam, the first representative of humanity, did not, could not do. He overcame sin. He conquered sin. And therefore, He, Jesus, is able to save sinners from their sin. Romans chapter 5 not only says that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. But it also says this, Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Church, Adam was the one man who brought death. Jesus is the one man who has brought life. Sin may promise a life. That it can't provide. But church, Jesus promises a life that He has already provided. He is able to rescue people overcome by sin because sin could not overcome Him. He couldn't be overcome in His conception because He was conceived in a virgin through the power of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, He did not inherit the sin nature of Adam. He couldn't be condemned by sin, overcome by sin in His living because He resisted every temptation and remained sinless to the point of death, even death on a cross. And He couldn't be overcome even in His death because, church, He rose up from the grave. And I don't know where you're at in your life right now. Satan and his temptations and the sin that comes from your own simple heart might seem like more than you can handle today. And the truth is, you're right. You can't handle your sin. I can't handle my sin. It's not a problem that we can fix. But that's okay because we have a Savior who can and who has already handled our sin. He laid down His life on the cross to pay for your sin and my sin. He lived a perfect life and died a sinner's death for you and for me. He endured the wrath of God on our behalf and He rose up from the grave conquering sin and Satan and death. And I just wonder if you have believed in Him for salvation today. That passage from Romans 5 that I just read clearly says this. It says, note these words, those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness who will reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Those who receive. And only those who receive. So my question is, have you received salvation through Jesus? 
Have you received salvation through Jesus? When Satan says, here, take and eat, rest assured, it's only going to lead to death and destruction. But friends, when Jesus says, take and eat, this food is a food that leads to rescue from sin and everlasting life. Because what He is offering us is His broken body and His blood poured out. Now all of us have taken and eaten from Satan's hand. We all are sinners and worthy of death. And our only hope is that we would take from what Christ has provided. And that is His own self. His own life in our place. And so will you take and eat from the hand of Christ today? Will you repent of your sin and believe in Jesus alone for salvation? Belief in Jesus is the only way for your relationship with God, that broken relationship, to be reconciled. We find these beautiful words in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. Let's rejoice in this, church. Let's rejoice in this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, there's the receiving, you have to receive it. Therefore, since we have been justified by, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So have you received this salvation? And if you have, are you standing in that grace today? Are you rejoicing in the hope that we have? This hope of the glory of God manifested in Christ Jesus come to rescue us for all of eternity. You don't have to be overcome by sin because your sin has already been overcome by Jesus. Yes, church. Yes, church. The world has been corrupted by the ugliness of sin. But don't be driven to despair. Instead, be driven to Jesus for a beautiful, a beautiful salvation. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Maybe you're here today and you have never received this gift of grace. Maybe you are living right now under the weight of your sin. And you might be the only one who knows that. People around you, people you live with, people who know you might think that you're a Christian. But you know you've been trying to fix a problem that you can't fix. And today, God through His Word is calling you to salvation. And so I just want to encourage you to do this. Confess to Jesus that you have sinned against Him. Thank God that Jesus came to rescue us from our sin. And ask God to save you, not because you are worthy of it, but because He loved you enough to send His Son to pay the price for your sin. Repent of sin and have faith in Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, I don't know what You're doing in each heart and life here in this place, but I do pray that salvation has come to this house today. God, I pray that anyone who has never received the gift of grace, God, that they today, maybe for the first time, have seen the reality of their situation apart from divine intervention. And that they run to Christ who has already run to them. Father, for those of us who have already trusted in Jesus, God, 
Would we rejoice in this hope, in this grace that You have given to us? If there is sin in our lives, would You search our hearts, help us to confess it to You, and then help us to rest in and rejoice in and celebrate victory in Jesus Christ today. God, may You be responded, may You be honored and worshipped in the way that we respond to Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen.